This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Sponsored by Amazon, Audible, HostGator, Gamefly, and supporters of independent media like you. Welcome to the Humanist Report. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 57th episode of the podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by the newest people who decided to join the independent progressive media revolution. So today we have Hugh Downs. You can check out his website at mabian.biz. And he wants everyone to know that you can contact Jigme at samyetravels.com. If you are planning on taking a trip to Nepal, and you can also check out his photos of Nepal at Namaste Kitchen, located at 7225 Healdsburg Avenue in Sebastopol, California. We also have DeAndre Miller, and he wanted me to plug the Take Back Democracy March on October 23rd. Uh, You can check out Inspired by DeAndre Miller, his Facebook page, to get more information about that. We also have Cody Porter who is a new member, Eliana Jacobs, who is also another member. And then we have someone on Patreon, uh, Holly Lupian, who decided to support us that way. And then we also received an anonymous donation. So thank you to all of these individuals for supporting the podcast. If you would also like to support the show, visit the links down below in the description box. But just know that so long as you watch, that's all I could ever ask or hope for. So on today's episode, I will be talking about the latest Clinton scandal of the week And I'll also discuss the launch of Bernie Sanders' Our Revolution, uh, which is a new organization, and give you an update on the status of Tim Canova's campaign against Bernie's arch-nemesis, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, otherwise known as Debbie Do Anything for Hillary Wasserman Schultz. Also, The Daily Show and Al Gore have some strong words for people who want to support Jill Stein. Meanwhile, Jill Stein is actually fighting for the rights of the disadvantaged. Now, finally, I will talk about Hillary Clinton's hypocritical stance on for-profit colleges. All these topics will be discussed. Enjoy the show. So Tim Canova is currently in the final stretch of his campaign against the former corrupt DNC chair, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who resigned in disgrace. And he's currently down in the polls. He's going to need a miracle to win. So who's the one individual in the country that can give him the edge he needs to beat this corrupt individual known as Debbie Do Anything for Hillary Wasserman Schultz? Obviously, it's Bernie Sanders. So, I mean, clearly, Bernie Sanders is going to hit the campaign trail for him, right? I mean, since he endorsed Tim Canova and recognizes the importance of his campaign. I mean, I just covered a story where I talked about how Bernie Sanders had intended to hit the campaign trail with Tim Canova. And it was really putting another divide between him and Hillary again. But, according to the Miami Herald... Bernie Sanders was a no-show for Tim Canova. And furthermore, Tim Canova is claiming that Bernie Sanders, as well as his staff members, are not returning any of his calls. He says, I'm waiting for Bernie to return my call. And not just Bernie, a couple people very high up in his camp. We are hoping that the Sanders campaign does still come through, that Bernie comes through and makes an appearance for us, or at the very least helps us raise some more money during such a critical period down the home stretch. So Tim Canova doesn't know why it's the case that Bernie Sanders is abandoning him. He speculated that it may be because he's getting pressure from Hillary Clinton's campaign. And look, here's the thing about this. Bernie Sanders, he can rest, okay? He doesn't have to come out and campaign for anyone. If he's going to do that, I would hope that he would support Tim Canova. But I mean, I would understand if he's going to rest. He's 74 years old. He ran a fantastic campaign. I'm not going to fault him if he decides to take a vacation, But the problem is that he's not doing that. In fact, in an interview with the Washington Post published just on August 19th, Bernie said that he would be hitting the campaign trail with Hillary Clinton and said he was actually looking forward to it. He said, quote, I feel very strongly that Donald Trump would be a disaster for the country. I want to do everything I can to see that Secretary Clinton wins. That's puzzling because currently Hillary Clinton is ahead of Donald Trump, beating him in basically every single poll. So it's unnecessary for you to pour salt in the wounds of your supporters and be a surrogate for Hillary Clinton after everything that was done. So I don't get that. I don't get why you would choose to ditch Tim Canova for Hillary Clinton. It doesn't make sense to me, but that's not all. So I want to share a clip from TYT Politics hosted by Jordan Sheridan, where he talks about why it's likely that Bernie Sanders intentionally chose to abandon Tim Canova. Take a look. Uh, Bernie Sanders, during his Our Revolution speech, uh, previewing what the organization would be about, he named five candidates uh, of many, but he spotlighted five candidates. Absent from that mention was Tim Canova, 
we're not talking about Tim Canova running for election in November when there's still a little time. Tim Canova's race is in five days. Bernie Sanders didn't just forget Tim Canova. Bernie Sanders didn't forget to mention Tim Canova. Uh, this was a deliberate choice by Bernie Sanders not to mention Tim Canova. And by the way, shout out to Jordan Sheridan for fantastic work. He's an excellent journalist. I would encourage everyone to check out his channel. But in the end, this really, really hurts. When you take into account the fact that Debbie Wasserman Schultz, just like in the Democratic primary, is getting dirty against Tim Canova. She's using voter suppression tactics against him. And also the fact that members of the Democratic establishment are coming to bat for Debbie Wasserman Schultz. You have Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, civil rights legend, John Lewis, Nancy Pelosi, all coming to campaign for Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Yet the one person who could make a difference, Bernie Sanders, is leaving Tim Canova out to dry. Look, I shouldn't have to explain to Bernie how important Tim Canova's campaign is. His opponent, Debbie Do Anything for Hillary Wasserman Schultz, sabotaged your campaign, Bernie. She slandered your name. Not only that, but she has a super PAC and is bankrolled by large corporations. Tim Canova isn't. So if he wins, he'll show corporatist Democrats everywhere that you don't need to be funded by big money to win elections. And yet, Bernie Sanders is nowhere to be found seemingly because he made some kind of a deal with Hillary Clinton and said, you know, if you give me X, Y, and Z policy concessions, concessions or put it in the Democratic platform, I'll lay off of Debbie and I won't campaign for Tim. I don't know what the hell's going on. I don't know what, what the issue is here. But let me explain something to Bernie Sanders that I want to make very clear. I don't know if he's going to see this video. Probably not. But if he does, think about this. That feeling that you felt when Elizabeth Warren abandoned you and chose to run away from you, uh, during the Massachusetts primary, that's what Tim Canova is feeling right now. So of all people in the world, I would expect you to have the most amount of empathy for Tim Canova. But for whatever reason, you've chosen to distance yourself from Tim Canova at a crucial point when you very well could be what makes or break his, breaks his campaign. I have no clue what to make of this. I've been someone who has been an adamant defender of Bernie Sanders. I mean, you really split your progressive base when you chose to endorse Hillary Clinton. And I defended you for that because I said, look, he's not selling out. He ran in the Democratic primary. He's just doing what he thinks he has to do to defeat Donald Trump and is endorsing his opponent. That makes sense to me. Okay, I get that. I could rationalize that. I can't rationalize this. I can't defend you here, Bernie. This is indefensible. Just because you're Bernie Sanders and I like you and you galvanize the whole political movement doesn't mean that you're above criticism. And again, I would be okay with you abandoning Tim Canova if you weren't going to campaign for Hillary Clinton. But the fact that you're ditching him and obviously distancing yourself from him for some reason, but yet are going to campaign for Hillary Clinton is absurd to me. Why is it that Debbie Wasserman Schultz, aka Debt Trap Debbie, can have the entire political establishment, Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, the most powerful people in the country, arguably the world, come out and support her, but Tim Canova can't even have you come out to support him? Why is it that she gets to have this advantage? And she gets to subject Tim Canova to voter suppression tactics. We don't know if it's her, we don't know if it's her super PAC, but Nonetheless, it's helping Debbie. So she's she's a-okay with that. We've seen that with the Democratic primary. Why is it that this corrupt politician gets this advantage and someone who you should be fighting for, you're abandoning him, Bernie? I don't get it. I don't get it, and I can't defend Bernie here. And let me just say this. If it's the case that Hillary Clinton really is elected and we see Bernie Sanders appointed to a cabinet position, any movement you wanted to continue after the election, any issue you cared about, it's dead. It's dead because if someone like Bernie Sanders can sell out, then truly there's not a single politician in a whole goddamn country that will ever be principled enough to get us the change that we need to actually create a political revolution. Bernie Sanders, you are supposed to be the shining example. If you sell out, we're fucked. We're never going to get progressive change ever because... All your voters, all the young people who you inspired, who look at you as an example, as, as someone who's principled, if you tell them that you're willing to sit down on progressive ideals for Hillary Clinton, they're never going to vote again. This is the generation we're talking about here. You have a lot of power right now in our political establishment. You may not be a member of the establishment, but if you become a member of the establishment, let me tell you this. 
your voting base goes away instantly our revolution that organization dies you've got to come out bernie now look to his credit he put tim canova on the our revolution website but i'll just say this cancel whatever plans you had bernie to campaign with hillary clinton if we see that you are doing that campaigning with hillary but you're abandoning tim canova you have to think of the optics it's unacceptable and this is indefensible and even though i love bernie sanders i'm still a fan of him in spite of this i can't defend you here a journalist at think progress asked al gore former democratic nominee what he thought about people who were considering voting for third party candidates but were concerned about climate change and he was very clear that you should not vote third party so he states i would also urge them to look carefully as I know they have, at the consequences of going in another direction for the third or fourth alternative. The harsh reality is that we have two principal choices, and I am supporting Hillary Clinton. Again, I respect those who analyze the situation differently, but in my experience, it matters a lot. Well, I'm glad that he respects those who want to analyze the situation differently, because that's exactly what I'm going to do. Here's what he's doing. He is taking the fact that he ran a shitty campaign and is blaming it entirely on Ralph Nader and people who voted for Ralph Nader in 2000. He's effectively saying, don't blame me for running a terrible presidential campaign and picking Joe Lieberman as my running mate. Blame the few people that were dissatisfied with my shitty campaign and blame Ralph Nader. I'm going to be really nice here. So I'm going to clue Al Gore, Hillary Clinton, Tim Kaine, all these centrist corporatist Democrats in on a secret here. If you actually are not a shitty candidate and can inspire people and be a real progressive, you don't have to worry about a third party threat. Who didn't have to worry about a third party threat? Hmm, let's see, Barack Obama. Even though we know he's a centrist corporatist Democrat, he ran as a progressive. He knew how to inspire people and galvanize the base. It's not just because he's charismatic, it's because of his policy positions. It was because of the ideas he represented. We believed that he would not conduct politics as usual, that he wouldn't allow lobbyists to run his administration. We were wrong, but he at least ran a good campaign in that respect and fooled us that way. He didn't have to worry about a third-party threat. Did third-party candidates exist? Yes, Jill Stein ran back in 2012. Nobody heard of her because Barack Obama was a very strong candidate. But for some reason, Al Gore and Hillary Clinton, two really uninspiring presidential candidates that are proposing only incremental change, have to worry about third-party challengers. Hmm, I wonder why this is. Why is it that only certain types of Democrats centrist corporatist ones have to worry about third-party challengers whereas the other ones who run as left-wing candidates they don't have to worry about third-party challengers why is that hmm maybe you didn't inspire enough people to vote for you is that ralph nader's fault no is that the fault of the people that voted for him no so here's what democratic candidates need to do from here on out if you see that a third-party challenger becomes an increasingly bigger threat you need to reevaluate your policy positions because you're doing something horribly wrong. Turn around, you're moving away from the base, and they're abandoning you because of what you're doing. And let's actually look at the facts here. Most people that voted for Ralph Nader were either independent or registered Green Party members. So one could actually argue that they weren't even part of the Democratic voting base to begin with. So they weren't yours to lose. But here's a less convenient fact that everyone forgets. More than 100,000 Democrats across the country actually crossed party lines and voted for George W. Bush. Why aren't you blaming them? The Democratic establishment is actually more outraged when we support independent or Green Party candidates like Jill Stein or Bernie Sanders than when we support Republicans. And here's the most important part. The Supreme Court is the one that actually decided this election by denying Florida the ability to do a recount, which it was later determined that you had actually won. So had you actually fought harder, you could have won, but you were quick to give up on the battle in true spineless Democratic fashion. You guys don't like to fight for your ideas and fight for your principles, and that's why you lost, Al Gore. And I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Let's say hypothetically that it really was the case that it came down to Ralph Nader, and he was single-handedly responsible for costing you the election. This election is different. That doesn't even matter because you had a spoiler on one side. In this election cycle, you have a spoiler on both sides. You have Jill Stein... And then you have Gary Johnson, and you actually have Evan McMullen as well. So you have two potential spoilers on the Republican side and only one on the uh, Democratic side. So we can't call Jill Stein a spoiler. It's factually inaccurate. 
because a spoiler is someone who takes votes away from one candidate. So if anyone was going to worry about spoilers this election, it should be the Republicans. And also, let me just say this. It's currently the case that Hillary Clinton is leading in basically every single poll. When you look at real clear politics averages, she's ahead by a pretty large amount. So they're not actually worried right now that Jill Stein is going to cost Hillary Clinton the election because Jill Stein is included in many of those polls. Here's what they want. I'll tell you what they want. They want the Democratic Party to be complete and utterly dominant. They don't want Hillary Clinton to have any political opposition whatsoever. And here's what they don't realize. If Jill Stein wasn't an option, I still wouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton. I would just write in Bernie Sanders. So by saying I shouldn't vote for Jill Stein, you're not going to automatically sway me to support Hillary Clinton. So here's my advice to the Democrats who are irrationally afraid that Jill Stein is going to be a spoiler. Rather than dedicating all the time and energy into trying to convince people who clearly told you they wouldn't support Hillary Clinton during the primaries to do what they don't want to do, rather than trying to, quote, correct the record online and on YouTube and Reddit, why don't you get off your asses, come out from behind your computer, and register some new voters that will actually support Hillary Clinton? See, because if Hillary Clinton loses, she doesn't get to use Jill Stein or her supporters as a scapegoat for why she lost. It will be because Hillary Clinton ran a shitty, terrible campaign. It'll be because her supporters were unsuccessful at putting in the time to phone bank and face bank and canvas for her. And she also has the entire corporate media establishment on her side. So if she loses to a gigantic buffoon like Donald Trump, who is someone she should be beating easily with this advantage... She has no one to blame but herself. And that goes for you too, Al Gore. You had no one to blame but yourself. You didn't inspire enough people. If you had enough people voting for you, if you had enough supporters that were inspired and wanted to fight for you like they did for Bernie, you wouldn't have had to worry about Ralph Nader in the first place. But he didn't cost you the, the election. You cost yourself the election because you didn't want to fight and you were a poor candidate. So after Bernie Sanders exited the Democratic primary, he promised that he would create several organizations to carry on the torch of his historic campaign. And I'm happy to report that the first organization has launched called Our Revolution. So here's a clip of Bernie Sanders talking about that at its launch event. Tonight, I want to introduce you to a new independent nonprofit organization called Our Revolution which is inspired by the historic Bernie 2016 presidential campaign. Over time, our revolution will involve hundreds of thousands of people. These are people who will be fighting at the grassroots level for changes in their local school boards, in their city councils, in their state legislatures, and in their representation in Washington. We helped write the strongest and most progressive democratic platform in the history of the United States of America. While we did not get everything we wanted, it is fair to say that that document is an extremely progressive document. And let me also say this. If anybody thinks that that document and what is in that platform is simply going to be resting on a shelf somewhere, accumulating dust. They are very mistaken. We are going to make... We are going to bring that platform alive and make it the blueprint for moving the Democrats forward in Congress and all across this country. We change the conversation regarding the possibilities of our country. That is what we change. We redefined what the vision and the future of our country should be. And let me, speaking only for myself, tell you what to me the political revolution means. And it means to me nothing less than the transforming of the United States of America, the transformation of our country into a society in which we will not continue to have 
a handful of billionaires controlling our economic, political, or media life. Now, one would think that this should be an exciting time for progressives, right? Because, I mean, this is what we wanted. We want the revolution to continue past Bernie Sanders because it wasn't never really about Bernie. It was about the ideas that he represented. But the problem is that there are some people that are still really hurt by his endorsement of Hillary Clinton, and they're not inclined to support this organization. And also, a problem is that it's been off to a really, really shaky start thus far. So eight core staff members have resigned in protest and the group's entire core organizing department quit as well. And also, there were people in the digital positions that up and left too. So we see mass resignations at the start of this organization. Now, Bernie Sanders even reached out to them and asked them to reconsider quitting, but they just outright refused. So the question is, what the hell is going on? Because these are people who worked with Bernie Sanders' campaign and are now deciding to abandon him when he's trying to have his uh, progressive revolution live on. So what's happening? Well, it seems as though Jeff Weaver, Bernie Sanders' former campaign manager, is at the heart of the controversy. So the New York Times explains that at the heart of the issue, according to several people who left, was deep distrust of and frustration with Mr. Weaver, whom they accused of wasting money on television advertising during Mr. Sanders' campaign, mismanaging campaign funds by failing to hire staff members or effectively target voters, and creating a hostile work environment by threatening to criticize staff members if they quit. Claire Sandberg, who was the organizing director at Our Revolution and had worked on Mr. Sanders' campaign, said she and others were also concerned about the group's tax status. As a 501c4 organization, it can collect large donations from anonymous sources and that a focus by Mr. Weaver on television advertising meant that it would fail to reach many of the young voters who powered Mr. Sanders' campaign and are best reached online. I left and others left because we were alarmed that Jeff would mismanage this organization as he mismanaged the campaign, she said, expressing concern that Mr. Weaver would betray its core purpose by accepting money from billionaires and not remaining grassroots funded and plowing that billionaire cash into TV instead of investing it in building a genuine movement. The staff members who quit also said that they feared that the 501c4 designation meant that the group would not be able to work directly with Mr. Sanders or the people that he had encouraged to run for office because such organizations are not allowed to coordinate directly with candidates. Alright, so there is a lot going on there clearly, uh, so we'll try to unpack it. But first, I'll just say that when it comes to the claim that Jeff Weaver mismanaged Bernie Sanders' campaign, I'm honestly split on this. I don't know whether or not that is true. I, I, I didn't work for Bernie Sanders, so I don't know the internal dynamics that went on there, but I'm split. So I'll kind of tell you my thoughts on that. And also, if it is the case that Jeff Weaver did, in fact, create a hostile work environment, that's indefensible. I can't defend him there. But I mean, there's probably some truth to that claim because I did like Weaver because he was very snappy. And I think that with all the dirt Hillary surrogates and the corporate media were trying to throw at him and Bernie Sanders, Bernie needed someone who was kind of a guard dog that would shoot down bullshit. And Weaver was like that. So it's not too surprising to me that someone with that type of personality wouldn't be very fun to work with. And just from an operational perspective, I'm sure that there are some criticisms of Jeff Weaver that they had, which are valid. So sure, you can say that campaign funds would be better spent on X rather than Y, but from my point of view, I didn't get the sense that Jeff Weaver was a bad campaign manager. So I mean, when it comes to that part of their contention with Weaver, I don't know enough about his competency level as a campaign manager from within, uh, but I would probably side with the staffers that resigned and say that there's at least a kernel of truth to what they're saying. But with that being said, here's where I disagree with their criticism of Weaver. So they took issue with him allocating money mostly to television advertising because it fails to reach younger voters who don't watch television. But I mean, is that the correct strategy? I would argue yes, and this is because when you're running a campaign, you want to focus on the demographics that you don't currently have. Bernie Sanders already had younger voters, so by advertising to them online, it would be a waste of money because they already knew about him. So to actually run these television advertisements and try to attract older voters who Bernie Sanders didn't have the support of, 
I think that's a good strategy because older voters would never hear about Bernie Sanders if you just advertised online. Whereas younger people, they already knew about Bernie Sanders. It was kind of a word of mouth thing. They saw him online. They watched YouTube videos. They watched progressive media shows like The Humanist Report and Secular Talk and Young Turks. And they heard about him that way. So young people, they know about Bernie Sanders. Old people didn't know about Bernie Sanders. So I think that Jeff Weaver was correct to try to target them by advertising on television. Also, I don't necessarily think that it's fair to say that Jeff Weaver just outright mismanaged Bernie Sanders' campaign because you have to look at what happened and what he did. Bernie Sanders overcame a 60-point deficit and nearly won in spite of the election fraud and the DNC's attempts to sabotage his campaign. So, I mean, when you take that into account, I wouldn't say that a campaign that did that and pulled that off was mismanaged. I just, it doesn't seem correct to me. Now, with that being said, Jeff Weaver is not above criticism, and I'm sure that the people who actually worked closely with him had some legitimate concerns. But the problem is that I didn't work with Jeff Weaver. I saw how the campaign just exploded. But I don't know what happened behind the scenes. And so moving away from Jeff Weaver. So they were disappointed that they wouldn't be working closely with Bernie Sanders. But Bernie Sanders knows that that's not a good look to hold public office and then have a potentially massive organization. So he doesn't want this to look like the Clinton Foundation 2.0. So I think Bernie Sanders is correct to distance himself. But at the same time, I understand there's this disappointment that they want someone who is responsible for creating this organization and galvanizing the movement to be at the forefront of it. They want him to be the captain of the ship, but if he's going to remain in Congress, that's not possible, and it doesn't look good for him to have this organization that has millions of dollars, maybe, and, you know, it, it just looks bad. It's a bad look, so he can't be associated with it, so I think he's doing the correct thing to distance himself because he doesn't want it to look as though there's corruption going on, even if they're not going to take money from billionaires. Now, getting to that, with that status designation, if they are a 501c4 organization, it does give them the potential to accept donations from billionaire donors. And Claire Sandberg, who's one of the people who is resigning, she said that Jeff Weaver wanted the organization specifically to be set up as a 501c4, so that way they can accept billionaire money. Now, I have no idea if this is true, but Larry Cohen, the board chair of the organization, he's claiming that there will be no donations from billionaires. And I'm actually inclined to believe him because what happens if this organization does take money from billionaires? You lose legitimacy like that. The people who supported Bernie Sanders are not going to support an organization that's bankrolled by billionaires because I'm not going to give you my hard-earned dollars. You can get that from the billionaires if you're already taking money from them. So like with Bernie Sanders, I had no problem donating to him. I donated multiple times to him. But with Hillary Clinton, uh, her, my response to her when she tries to do fundraisers is, no, go talk to George Soros. Go talk to your billionaire donors. You're not going to ask us for money because we actually have to work for a living to make our money. So if they actually were to take money from billionaire donors, it discredit the organization. But... On the other side of the coin, as a 501c4 organization, they don't have to disclose the names of their donors. So there's that part. And also, I would think that her skepticism about this organization accepting billionaire donations would probably be because she just distrusts and dislikes Jeff Weaver altogether. So the fact that he's heading it probably gives her a really bad idea in her mind. Uh, but there were reports that Jeff Weaver was headed to California to meet with billionaire Tom Steyer to see if he would donate. <laughs> but on the other side of the coin, Jane Sanders confirmed on Twitter that they would only be raising money from small grassroots contributors. So I don't know what the hell is true and what's not true. I don't know. Uh, if it is the case that this organization will be taking money from billionaire donors, I don't want anything to do with it. But I don't know if they're going to be doing that. We have conflicting claims here. Um, I would just think that they wouldn't take billionaire donations because that's that would violate everything that Bernie Sanders stood for. I don't give a shit if the billionaires agree with me. By giving them money, by giving our revolution money, that drowns out all of our voices. Because if they want one issue to be more important than our issues, then that's going to be what happens. So it wouldn't make sense that they're going to take billionaire donations. So I don't know what to believe. I'm going to refrain from making a judgment and i'm gonna see how it plays out but i'm gonna say that i don't think they would be stupid enough to take billionaire donations but if they are you don't have my support so when it's all said and done uh we have reasons to be disappointed we really do but 
At the same time, I would tell people to refrain from being overly skeptical about this organization because I think it does have potential. And look, even though it may not be much now, it can morph into a great organization. Now, it's useful because you can see the various issues that are important and actually look at progressive candidates that are running and support them. Now, my hopes is that it would be something like the NRA where they rate members who are running for Congress and kind of give them a score as to how progressive they are based on the ideals that they actually support. So when you have people like Hillary Clinton and Debbie Wasserman Schultz saying, I'm a progressive, you can actually go to Our Revolution and see, actually, you have a 60% rating, so you're not really progressive. That's what I want. I would love to see that. Now, with that being said, that's a lot of work. But I mean, if we could fund this organization by grassroots means exclusively, we could potentially make this organization very powerful. Because if you get on its bad side, well, then you know that you won't have any credibility among actual progressives. So the takeaway is that should we be a little bit apprehensive about this organization just based on the conflicting claims that we've heard? Yeah, we should. But I am not willing to throw in the towel just yet and stick a fork in our revolution because this really could potentially grow into something that's huge. So I would encourage you to get behind this organization, potentially donate to it. I want this organization to succeed and I'm not willing to just throw it under a bus because it started off rocky. Let's give it a chance. Let's not be overly skeptical about it. Let's try to support this organization, and we need it. We need it. If we really want to fight for progressive policy positions, if we really want to get Bernie Kratz elected, I think this organization is potentially an effective way to do that. So I'm going to support this organization. Uh, I do have my reservations now. I want to make sure that they're not going to take billionaire money, but I don't think they will. If they will, then I'm going to be the first one to come out and call them out on it. But I will keep you updated on this organization Let's all hope that it succeeds. Jill Stein is shedding light on a really important political issue that isn't getting much play in the mainstream media and just isn't being discussed around the country, generally speaking. So there are plans to construct an oil pipeline that will go from the Bakken region of North Dakota to southern Illinois. And this is dangerous because it threatens the drinking water of millions of Americans and it also violates U.S. treaties and the sovereignty of a tribe known as Standing Rock. And this would transport 470,000 barrels of crude oil per day. And this would go over the Missouri River, which is less than a mile from the tribe's territory. So in an op-ed for the New York Times, one of the tribal members explains the nearly 1,200-mile pipeline owned by a Texas oil company named Energy Transfer Partners would snake across our treaty lands and through our ancestral burial grounds just a half mile from our reservation boundary. The proposed route crosses the Missouri River, which provides drinking water for millions of Americans and irrigation water for thousands of acres of farming and ranching lands. The Dakota Access Pipeline was fast-tracked from day one using the Nationwide Permit Number 12 process, which grants exemption from environmental reviews required by the Clean Water Act and the National Environmental Policy Act by treating the pipeline as a series of small construction sites. And unlike the better-known Keystone XL project, which was finally canceled by the Obama administration last year, the Dakota Access Project does not cross an international border. The the condition that mandated the more rigorous federal assessment of the Keystone Pipeline's economic justification and environmental impacts. Now, in plans to construct this pipeline, the company that was going to do it, they're supposed to consult the tribe before going through with any of these projects, but they claimed that there were no meaningful attempts to consult with them about constructing this pipeline. So as a result, people are rightfully outraged. So members of the tribe, along with thousands of other peaceful protesters, have been fighting and protesting to halt this pipeline. Now, of course, they are using nonviolent tactics, but can you guess what's happening? They are being harassed, intimidated, and arrested by police officers who are falsely claiming that they're getting violent. This is a typical go-to tactic. I mean, we saw it at the DNC event in Nevada when they claimed that Bernie Sanders supporters were throwing chairs. Well, they're kind of using that similar tactic here. They're claiming that they're being violent when they're being peaceful and they're using that as a uh, justification to arrest them under these false accusations. It's just completely ridiculous. So thankfully, Jill Stein and Ajamu Baraka have come to the defense 
of Standing Rock and the people who don't want this pipeline constructed. And they are saying, we salute the courageous people of the Standing Rock Reservation and their allies who are standing up to protect their land and our future on Earth from the poisonous fossil fuel industry and an economy that puts corporate profits over people and planet. The time is now to stop the destruction of our planet for short-term profits. Extreme weather, exacerbated by climate change, shows why we need to immediately say no to fossil fuel expansion and say yes to wind, water, and solar. Transitioning to 100% clean, renewable energy as our Green New Deal program will do is the path to ending unemployment, halting the climate meltdown, and building a healthier society. It provides a just transition that respects the lives, lands, and livelihoods of Native American communities. It's also the only way forward to a future in which we can survive and thrive. Now, the battle for this has been taken to court, so we won't find out what the court decides until the beginning of September. But until then, I think we need to do everything to make as much noise about this as possible. Because... This is not okay. This cannot be constructed for environmental reasons and for moral reasons and for issues like this where only a few thousand people are really speaking out. Well, politicians often don't bother uh, doing anything for them because, you know, that's not going, going to get them much more voters. But Jill Stein here is taking a strong moral stance and is saying, no, I don't care how small the crowd of people are. We have to make sure that their rights are not violated. We all have a right to a planet that is habitable to clean drinking water and all that this will do is facilitate the destruction of our planet it's not okay now if you would like to help the people of standing rock you can donate to them and see the link in the description box to do so much like the keystone XL pipeline if we put up a big enough fight then they'll be compelled to stop. So these oil companies cannot continue to take advantage of us. So we have to fight this tooth and nail. They don't get to just pollute the planet and poison our drinking water because they want to make a buck or two. I don't think so. So we've got to fight this. So The Daily Show did a segment where they talked about third-party candidates for the presidential race. And unlike back in the day when Jon Stewart still hosted the show, it wasn't informative, nor was it actually funny, and they just outright spread false information about Jill Stein. So I was really taken aback by this because you would think that knowing how disliked Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are, that Americans, they're yearning for a third and fourth option. So to kind of shit all over that, I mean, even though it's a comedy bit, I, I, I took a lot of issues with it, so I can't actually play the clip, but I will link to it in the description box, uh, but I'll try to walk you through what they talked about and where specifically I had issues with them. So to give you guys the setup, he talked about how voters are very dissatisfied with having to choose between Hillary and Donald Trump, but then handed it off to the correspondents. So basically, each correspondent would claim to support either Gary Johnson or Jill Stein, and then Trevor Noah would come in as the pragmatist and the voice of reason and tell them why that was a dumb decision. So it started with Hassan Minaj, who represented the ridiculous Gary Johnson supporter, according to them. And to shoot down the idea of Gary Johnson, it basically came down to them fear-mongering about him because he likes to smoke pot. Now, it was a comedy bit, again, and they were only poking fun at him, but there wasn't any substance there. Now, when it came to Jill Stein, that's where it really took a turn for the worse. So the female correspondent made her pitch about Jill Stein and said how she wants to move us to 100% clean renewable energy and cancel all student debt. That was great. One joke, however, it made me cringe. So they said that uh, Jill Stein was so progressive, it would be as if Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders had sex and someone watched it and that person would be Dr. Jill Stein. Oh, that was... That was really stupid. Now, Hassan Minaj chimed in and said, how could you support a candidate that's skeptical about vaccines? And they also decided to use what she said about Wi-Fi against her as well. Now, to be fair, the correspondent claiming to be a Jill Stein supporter said that she was only asking for more research. So let's go ahead and stop right there. So to say that Jill Stein is skeptical of vaccines is a complete and utter misrepresentation of her position. Look, let me be clear here. If Jill Stein was an anti-vaxxer, I would not support her. I would not vote for her. I would just write in Bernie Sanders because I'm someone who is of the opinion that vaccines should be mandatory because even though it's the case that I am in favor of personal and individual liberty, you don't have the liberty to create public health crises because you're ignorant of science. So I would not support Jill Stein given the potential policy implications that she'd have as an anti-vaxxer. Jill Stein is not skeptical of vaccines, nor is she an anti-vaxxer. Snopes cleared this up. 
And Dr. Jill Stein herself cleared this up. Take a look. You seem to support vaccines, yet you're evasive about your schedule or the support of the schedule. So I just wanted you to clarify that for me. So that statement about the schedule was taken out of context. So when I was practicing um, and following issues around immunization, which I am not now, um, there were concerns at the time about the mercury dose in vaccines and how kids might be loaded up in a way uh, related to that schedule and the presence of thimerosal in the vaccines. And that's what I was referring to, that there were legitimate questions at that time. But I understand those you know, the thimerosal has been taken out of the vaccines, anything that would be given to a child, and it's no longer an issue. I think there's kind of an effort to divert the conversation from our actual agenda, because the, the idea that I oppose vaccines is completely ridiculous. So now getting to the Wi-Fi portion, do I agree with her views about Wi-Fi? No, I don't. So I don't have to defend her on that issue because I don't agree with her there, but I never agree with any candidate 100% of the time. But if I'm just being frank here, who gives a fuck what she said about Wi-Fi? I mean, I can't think of any feasible policy positions you could extrapolate from that that would be damaging. Is she proposing to ban Wi-Fi? No, she's not. So I don't understand how this is something that would deter me from voting for her if it's effectively harmless, right? I mean, what she's proposing basically is more research when it comes to Wi-Fi. Um, I personally think that maybe we could use the funds elsewhere to study other things, but I mean, this isn't really damaging. She's not going to ban Wi-Fi. It's something that's a relatively benign statement, so I don't really care what she had to say about Wi-Fi. I care about the policies that matter, like her Green New Deal, where she wants to get us on totally renewable energy by 2030. Now, here's the thing. I don't necessarily take issue with that part so much as I do the next part. So there was a portion where they basically said that since third-party candidates have zero chance of winning, you shouldn't support them. So they said, we live in a two-party system. Voting for Jill Stein is like throwing pennies in a wishing well. It's fun to say what you wish for, but that doesn't mean that it's going to come true. Look, and this is an effective argument that many people like to use against third-party candidates. They say, Mike, we live in a two-party system. Voting for a third party will do nothing. Look up Duverger's law. We have a majoritarian electoral system, so they're never going to get elected. So why vote for them? Well, this is my response. I know about Duverger's law. I also know that we've come a long way in political science research since Maurice Duverger. So is it the case that the electoral system has the biggest impact on the effective number of political parties that a country has? Absolutely. However... It's also the case that there are other factors that influence the number of political parties in a country, such as political cleavages. So if you have a lot of societal divisions in a country, if you have a lot of polarization, that could potentially spawn third and fourth parties in spite of the fact that you have a majoritarian system. There's also local parties that pop up, so you have to look at whether or not a country is a federalist or a unitary state. So there's many factors. Also, it's not impossible for a third-party candidate to win. There are no barriers preventing that when it comes to the law. It's just highly improbable. However, that doesn't mean that your vote counts for nothing. See, third-party candidates serve as a crucial form of political opposition to the larger political parties. So even if you live in a two-party system, you want these third parties to exist. Otherwise, those two dominant parties, the duopoly that we see, they get really out of touch. They move away from voters. They disenfranchise voters. And so you have these third parties that really keep them in check and bring them back to where the base truly is. So as the Democratic Party, for example, moves further and further to the right and disenfranchises more and more voters, well, the Green Party's vote share will continue to grow and act as a very important check on democratic tyranny. So in a democracy, you need political opposition parties to prevent the two large parties from doing anything they want to. Now look, with that being said, your vote for a third party candidate is, in fact, more consequential in swing states. And you have to be cognizant about that as a responsible voter and decide whether or not you care more about defeating Trump or voting against Hillary Clinton. I don't have to make that decision as someone who lives in a deep blue state. But to say to people that their vote for a third party candidate is meaningless... I think that's a really dangerous statement. And think about this. If you're making the case against the existence of third parties, if you want them to go away, 
well, then you're literally arguing against democracy because part of democracy is about political opposition. If people feel as though they're not represented by the two main parties, competition pops up and people gravitate towards that competition. If one of those big parties fails, uh, like the Republican Party, they are headed for failure. They're, the cliff is dead ahead. So it is possible that either the Green or the Libertarian Party could take their place. And also, when you take into account the fact that America has one of the lowest voter turnout rates of any modern industrialized country, I get really nervous when people start spreading the idea that your vote doesn't matter or that you shouldn't support the candidate that you want to. So here's my question to you. Would you just prefer that they stayed home and not vote? Because they don't like Hillary Clinton. They don't want to support Hillary Clinton. And to some people, the only alternative is to just stay home. Like for me personally, if Jill Stein didn't exist, that wouldn't mean that I would just automatically support Hillary Clinton. I would probably just write in Bernie Sanders and protest. So are you truly telling us that we should just stay home rather than support a third party candidate? Is that really what you're saying? Because it sounds like it. But really what you want is for us to support the candidate of your choice that you support. And furthermore, if you really want Donald Trump to be defeated, then you should be happy about the existence of Jill Stein. Because if you really are trying to put up this dichotomy of either a Republican or Democratic candidate and there are no other options, if they really don't like Hillary Clinton, doesn't that increase the chances that they might go to Donald Trump? So Jill Stein is kind of a buffer that stops them from going to Donald Trump, right? Because, I mean, if we're protesting against Hillary Clinton, then wouldn't some people just vote for Donald Trump out of protest? So look, I mean, the argument is bullshit, and The Daily Show has really gotten out of touch. What you want to do if you want to be successful, Trevor Noah, and not go the way of the dodo like Larry Wilmore's show went, you actually have to tap into your millennial base. They don't like Hillary Clinton. They like Jill Stein. So you can cover Hillary Clinton. You can cover Jill Stein. But if you think that moving towards a more establishment pro-Clinton media is going to be what's going to get you more viewers, it's not. You'll go down very quickly. And this is one of the reasons why I wanted Jessica Williams to become the host, because I feel like she actually understands what young Americans want and care about. She has the comedy. She also has the smarts. This show was a great resource for political commentary for many young people. So the fact that they kind of decided to criticize Jill Stein in a manner that just misrepresents her positions, it's saddening to me. Every week, it seems like there's a brand new Hillary Clinton scandal, and this week is no exception. So the FBI has recently uncovered 15,000 more work-related emails that Hillary Clinton either sent or received on her private server when she was Secretary of State. So they are now going to have to review all 15,000 of those. Now, additionally, more news surrounding the brazen corruption of Bill and Hillary Clinton has come to light regarding their foundation. So we know about the various pay-to-play deals between the State Department that Hillary Clinton ran and the Clinton Foundation, but now we're beginning to see the full scope of these pay-to-play deals and what really was going on while she was Secretary of State. So, New York Post explains more than half of the private citizens who got FaceTime or spoke with Hillary Clinton while she was Secretary of State forked over bundles of cash to the Clinton Foundation, a stunning new investigation revealed Tuesday. At least 85 of the 154 non-government fat cats who got access to Clinton donated to her family charity or promised to back its programs either personally or through businesses or other groups, according to a review of State Department documents by the Associated Press. Combined, the donors shelled out as much as $156 million, with at least 40 donating more than 100000 each and 20 shelling out more than $1 million. More evidence that the family's foundation doubled as a pay-for-play operation for those seeking access to Clinton critics' charge. So let me just clarify here. So these are all of the non-governmental individuals. These are private citizens that she met with. This doesn't take into account all of her official uh, meetings with heads of state and actual government officials. This is just looking at the private citizens that she met with. Half of them are donors to the Clinton Foundation. Very, very revealing. Now, who are some of these mega-rich donors, you ask? Well, we don't know all of them at this point, but there are some, and we actually know about the pay-to-play deals. So one of them is a famed economist who asked for her help as the Bangladeshi government pressured him to resign 
from a nonprofit bank he ran. So he met with them three times and asked the Clintons to help with his corruption investigation that the Bangladeshi government was waging against him. And the Clintons, quote, ordered aides to find ways to assist him. So again, this is someone who is running a nonprofit who is being accused of corruption by the Bangladeshi government and Clintons are coming to assist him. Now also, Clinton reportedly told the Bangladeshi government, quote, we do not want to see any action taken that would in any way undermine or interfere in the operations of the Grameen Bank. That's the bank that their donor ran that they were defending. Very, very revealing. Now also, uh, there is a Wall Street big shot who sought Clinton's help with a visa problem. So she attended a breakfast meeting with him one day and the next day she was helping him with an issue. Now also, he donated two hundred fifty to 500000 to the Clinton Foundation. We don't have the actual amount, but just know that he made a very sizable contribution to her foundation and all of a sudden she's helping him. Interesting. Now, there are also Estee Lauder executives who met with the Clintons while her department worked with their corporate charity, and also they were donors. Uh, there was the slim fast billionaire S. Daniel Abraham, who is a Clinton fundraising bundler and foundation donor who was listed in Clinton's date books for eight meetings with her at various times. So you have so many people donating money to the Clintons and getting access in return while she was Secretary of State. So again, this is terrible. They're donating to her private charitable organization, and then in return, that's influencing her decisions as a public official. This is corruption. This is exactly what we call corruption. And just so you know the extent to which the State Department and the Clinton Foundation were connected, well, reviews of the call log from Cheryl Mills, a State Department aide who later went to go on to work for the Clinton Foundation, well, there were 148 messages from Laura Graham, the COO of the Clinton Foundation, between 2010 and 2012. So why is it the case that the COO of the Clinton Foundation, who is supposed to be separated from the State Department, is calling up a State Department aide 148 times within the span of two years? It can't be that possibly uh, she's asking for favors from the State Department of the Clinton Foundation donors, can it? Well, of course not. It's Hillary Clinton. She There's nothing that she could ever do that could be considered as wrong, according to her supporters. So, uh, you know, this isn't suspicious at all. This is just a right-wing attack, right? No, it's not. And this is absolutely terrifying. This should be really scary to anyone who is worried about money and politics and is just generally worried about corruption and the integrity of our democracy. Now, anticipating the pushback I'll get from Hillary Clinton supporters, they're going to say, Mike, look, there are many nonprofit organizations that the State Department is going to work with. That's just part of the job. But no other individual or nonprofit appears in the logs with anything approaching the frequency or volume with which the Clinton Foundation does. This is indefensible. This is corruption. And there was a Washington Post article that actually tried to uh, justify this, saying, oh, really, what this just shows is that people are going to make a mountain out of a molehill because the real story here is just that many people wanted to meet with Secretary Clinton. Well, of course, you're going to want to meet with the Secretary of State. So why is this even an issue? Well, let me explain to you why. If it's the case that that individual is donating money to a public official's private foundation, that establishes a direct conflict of interest. And the fact that she met with more than half of the private non-governmental donors as Secretary of State, guess what that means? They're buying access to the State Department by donating to the Clinton Foundation. This is overt corruption. Overt corruption. And again, this is just this week's scandal. Next week, there'll be a whole new one because Hillary Clinton, she cannot avoid scandals. Right-wingers are trying to smear her. That's true. They're coming at her with all of these phony scandals that are baseless. I mean, they're saying that her health is declining. They're saying that she's responsible for murdering people uh, during the attack on Benghazi, which is not true. Uh, but this, however, this is not a right-wing smear. This is factual evidence that the State Department was allowing donors of the Clinton Foundation to get special access and was doing favors for them. Anyone who's a Hillary Clinton supporter needs to condemn this. It's inexcusable. I don't care if Hillary Clinton does it. I don't care if Mitt Romney does it. I don't care if Bernie Sanders does it. This is wrong unequivocally. There's no conditions for this. So this is absolutely terrifying 
that the scope of corruption of the Clintons, it's just brazen. They don't even care. And they're just flaunting it in our face at this point. And I'm just excited to see the next revelation uh, from next week, because who knows what's going to come out then. Over the past couple of years, people have been really wising up to the fact that these for-profit colleges that you always see advertised on TV are just gigantic scams. Now, one of the individuals at the forefront of this controversy is Donald Trump, because we all know that he is now being sued for running his scam Trump, quote, university. And the actual instructors that worked for him alleged that they weren't really teachers so much as they were salespeople who were doing any and everything possible to extract more money from their victims that they were already scamming. Now, Hillary Clinton, she condemned this type of behavior and referred to Trump's scam university as, quote, a fraud and a scam, and also stated his own employees testified that Trump U, you can't make this up, that Trump U was a fraudulent scheme where Donald Trump enriched himself at the expense of hardworking people. Now, she's not just targeting Trump University. So additionally, according to the New York Daily News, Candidate Clinton has vowed to crack down on predatory for-profit schools as part of a broader plan to help lessen crippling student loan burdens on millions of Americans. The College Affordability Plan posted the Clinton's campaign website dubs for-profit colleges as institutions that have too often taken advantage of borrowers and promised to crack down on the abusive practices of for-profit colleges that defraud taxpayers while burdening students with debt for educational programs of no value. So from this, it's very clear. Her stance is unequivocal. So even though it's the case that Hillary Clinton may have taken money from defense contractors and the for-profit prison industry and Wall Street, well, at least we can say that she's on the right side of history when it comes to for-profit colleges, right? Yeah, not so fast. Bill Clinton accepted nearly $18 million in payments from a prominent for-profit education company despite the fact that his wife, Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton, has made criticism of such firms a cornerstone of her education policy proposals, a new report alleges. The former president took at least $17.6 million from Laureate International Universities, a large for-profit education conglomerate that runs at least 80 schools and universities across the world in exchange for a five-year role as honorary chancellor, NBC News reported. As part of that job, which Clinton held from 2010 to 2015, the former president traveled the world talking up the advantages of the company's schools, according to the network. So this is pretty bad, right? She is taking one stance, but her husband is taking an entirely different stance. Well, just you wait. There's more. Complicating the picture even more is the fact that Doug Becker, the founder of Laureate, has donated up to $5 million to the Clinton Foundation. And it appears that Hillary Clinton, during her tenure as Secretary of State, but before her husband was hired by the company, wrote to a top aide that she wanted officials from the school added to a State Department dinner guest list. And according to emails released by the State Department, Clinton, in 2009, described the company as the fastest growing college network in the world and mentioned that it was started by Doug Becker who Bill likes a lot. So it looks like when it comes to the two mainstream political choices that you have, you have someone who created for-profit colleges, and then you have someone who took an unseemly amount of money from them. So you can choose between a pro-for-profit college candidate or a pro-for-profit college candidate if you're voting for Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. But are we really surprised? I mean, when you look at education, that's one sector of society like healthcare that we should never economize and make it so that way we can profit off of it because the intrinsic value of education, it just merits us to take extra care in protecting education and making sure that people are getting a good, effective education that will help them either get jobs or just grow as a person. But when you have these neoliberal people like Hillary Clinton who claim to be liberal but want to allow for a privatization so these corporations can come in and profit off of things that are supposed to help people, then you never get any change because if the Democrats do it, if the Republicans do it, if everyone in our political establishment is in favor of privatizing and profiting off of things that are supposed to help us and help society and the economy grow, you will never 
get change. So Hillary Clinton can talk the talk all she wants about for-profit colleges, but she's not walking the walk. If you take $18 million, if your husband worked for a massively profitable for-profit education center, quote, education center, uh, you're not you're not against for-profit colleges. I'm sorry. I, I can't believe anything you say. You are very much in favor of them. So your unequivocal stance, it, it doesn't mean much. And the fact that you critique Donald Trump, it just shows that you're hypocritical. Because even if it's the case that Trump University may be a bigger scam than Laureate, it's a for-profit college. It's still a scam. So Hillary Clinton is a huge hypocrite on this issue. And I'm not surprised. I know other people aren't surprised, but this is something that needs to be advertised because we have to call her out on her bullshit. If she's going to say one thing but do another behind closed doors, that's not acceptable. So we have to make sure that we keep the pressure on these candidates, even if you're voting for them. If you're a supporter of Hillary Clinton, odds are you're liberal. And if you're liberal, you shouldn't support these types of scam for-profit universities. It's not acceptable. So you too have to put the pressure on Hillary Clinton. Well, that's all I got for you guys. I want to thank you all for tuning in so loyally every single week and welcome everyone who just found us to the channel. Uh, thanks to the members, the subscribers, and anyone who clicks that like button. And if you made it this far in the video, kudos to you. Uh, so I will see you guys next week. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Take care.